Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at The Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sensible way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. I'm here. I sprung myself from the Who's Gal, but I certainly did have an interesting time down in Dallas. Jesse, I was told Will's mic was cut and that I would be now the sole (laughs) host of Fever Dreams after his run-in with the law over the weekend. Anyway, okay, now that my plans have been thwarted, Will... After the long Memorial Day weekend, it is indeed good to have you back. Thank you. Can you please get in for our listeners what happened to you over the long weekend? Yes, I went down to Dallas because of a QAnon convention over the long weekend that was being hosted by a gentleman named QAnon John. Checks out. It was kind of hilarious because there was a point where people were like, it's not a Q thing. And it's like, well, the main guy's name is QAnon John. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to do too much decoding to figure that one out. But yeah, so I had bought a ticket back in March and this was a thing that was drawing like kind of a crazy amount of big deal Republicans. Alan West, the chairman of the Texas GOP was there. Louis Gohmert, member of Congress was there, Michael Flynn. And so I went down and, you know, ahead of time, they had refunded the tickets of some other reporters who were interested in going, but I mine was not refunded. And I sort of walked up and I said, here's my, uh, you know, my name. And, and I got my placard. And so I figured, you know, at least temporarily, I was a guy who was welcome to hang out at QCon. But after two days of learning all about the deep state and the nefarious cabal and attending a, an auction where a picture of Michael Flynn is a man. I thought you were going to say where you could buy children. Okay, sorry, keep going. (laughs) They had this auction and it was like a picture of Michael Flynn as a Minuteman and it just looked awful and it sold for $7,000 late on Sunday. There was kind of a hunt on and I was shown out by the Dallas Police Department. The Q crowd uh, went wild. People want to see footage of this. First of all, it's all over QAnon Telegram right now. This is like the biggest news since January 6th for them. Saw someone else who was inside under who was maybe not a QAnon believer was saying that this was like the, the biggest news of the weekend for these folks. They were talking about they were recounting it to one another. It was like, where were you when Will Summer got the boot? 
Okay, one of the videos I watched of it showed them doing a standing ovation after the cops come and escort you out of the tent revival or whatever it was. Can you paint a scene for our listeners exactly what that was like? It seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you were having a little bit of fun with it in the video. We can talk about sort of the lead up. So QCon was being guarded by, there were some Dallas police officers in the parking lot, but but kind of the, the majority of the security was from this group called First Amendment Praetorians. Sounds whose real. Whose name seems a little ironic in their treatment of the press. But these are guys who I've been interested in for a little while. They've been on the scene for like since Trump lost, basically. And they kind of come off like they're a bunch of like real like former operators, like spec ops guys. The main guy has like a real like kind of tough jawline. But I was like astounded to see the First Amendment Praetorians in action and how if there was a roving band of Antifa, I don't think they, QCon would have stood a chance. They were really like middle-aged men and women who did not look, I don't mean to shame people for their bodies, but they did not look like they were going to be real tough security guards. And the key thing I want to stress about the First Amendment Praetorians is they had a team of dogs and one of the dogs just looked really like underfed, did not look like he was in great shape. And the other dog was a pug. And so (laughs) this is kind of like the lethal force, you know, the, the attitude of the First Amendment Praetorians. But what happened to me was on day two, look, I was getting a little bored. I planned to start interviewing people soon, which I sort expected would get me booted anyway. And I was checking my phone too much. I made the mistake. I logged into Twitter and people were really getting into the QAnon stuff in sort of some boring ways. And I was on my phone too much. And so at the same time, another reporter who had snuck in, I was not making my presence known. I was there working on my book, but another reporter was sort of tweeting a lot and sort of like tee hee hee, I snuck in, which, you know, kind of spoils it for the rest of us because there was a hunt for him. And in his picture, he had a beard. Now, obviously he had shaved his beard from his Twitter profile. I had a beard at the time. And so they basically became convinced that I was this guy. I don't think they realized that I was there because I guess they didn't check their guest list. And so they became convinced that I was this other guy. And so these First Amendment Praetorians are started sitting around me and checking their phones and zooming in on this guy's Twitter picture. And that's how I knew they were after him. And they kept like looking at the picture and kind of looking at me and looking at each other and being like, yeah, it's him. And then I get up and kind of force the issue. And they this guy kind of chases me with his dog. And I was like, look. Was it the pug or the scrawny one? the scrawny one. And I said, look, my name's Will Summer. I'm here, bought a ticket. And that was why I knew they weren't looking for me because they were like, they looked at my ID and I, they said, this is a fake ID. Your name's not Will Summer. And so, I mean, they were clearly after him, but I think they went to their bosses and said, don't worry, that guy's Will Summer. And the bosses went like QAnon John was like, what? And so they, they <laughs> I was sitting down elsewhere and they came and escorted me out. But yeah, as I was getting up, Michael Flynn was on the stage. There was a lot of like, oh, we got to get this fake news. And there was a big, they were very excited. There were a lot of booze, a lot of like shame on news. And, you know, I gave the crowd a big wave. Obviously, we'd spent a couple days together learning all about Q. So I felt we had some sort of camaraderie. And then I was leaving and, th- you know, this was a great, like a huge content opportunity for a lot of QAnon streamers. And so there were a lot of people filming me as I was kind of frog marched out by the Dallas police and various cute on characters. But I think my favorite was Andrew from the previously the show, the YouTube show called All Gas No Breaks. Now Channel 5 News, who's a great guy, puts out a lot of great videos of political events. He was interviewing a gentleman who he had convinced to take his shirt off. And this was a kind of a Long Island maybe looking guy. And while the, the main QAnon promoters are trying to act like this is a very serious event, I see someone later, one of them later claim 
claimed that someone was trying to run over QAnon believers with a car. I mean, just like these insane lies. Well, that was you. I mean, that's not a claim. That's just a fact. And then the shirtless guy, he goes, Will Summer. Oh, that's my arch enemy or whatever. Look, obviously, I've never heard of this guy. And he starts, he joins the fray. And you can see the faces fall on the QAnon people who are looking for this, like, perfect, look how sane QAnon is thing, where now they have this shirtless guy who's like, yeah, get him. <laughs> so I saw myself out. But then, you know, I was I was staying at the same hotel as all these people for another night. And what had seemed like a good idea at the time to get a hotel <laughs> and sort of, like, see the behind-the-scenes action quickly became not ideal as the, the word was out that Will Summer was in town. And so... Did you get a lot of bangs on your hotel room door? Well, there was a lot of... I was trying to be very careful about that. And fortunately, no one, I think, at the hotel noticed me. But it was uh, not exactly the, the relaxing Memorial Weekend I might have hoped for. So growing up when you were dreaming of being an astronaut or a famous writer or whatever you dreamed of when you were a tween, is this the kind of fame that you <laughs> imagine that you'd one day fall into that anytime someone has it in their Facebook profile that James Comey is eating children in a dungeon, they know exactly who you are. They're familiar with the, your work. They will do things like shirtlessly scream, oh my God, it's Will Summer, let's go mob him. I do hear a lot about people who like consider themselves my nemeses and stuff. I've literally never heard of these people. I was talking to my friend's sister's boyfriend recently at a party, and he was like, oh yeah, my friends in North Carolina all hate you a lot. That's the kind of thing that you and your family really want to hear. As like, oh, great. Strangers really hate me. Talk about me all the time. But yeah, I mean, if I could offer some non-Will related insight on QCon. Well, first of all, how many people were there? This was kind of like, listeners may remember, I went to Tulsa in April for kind of a QAnon adjacent event. It was a little less explicitly QAnon related. But this is really like the Virgin Dallas QCon versus the Chad Tulsa QCon. So Tulsa cost, I think, at most like 200 bucks and was I think I want to say like 5,000 people. So a lot of people and at a higher point in the pandemic. And so like a little more impressive there. And also the people there could not have cared less that I was there. Meanwhile, QCon had, I think I would say it maxed out at 500, $500 tickets, minimum, real expensive stuff, terrible food and taking place in one of the most bizarre places I've ever seen a old West themed event hall in Dallas's basically abandoned convention center zone where it's called Eddie Dean's ranch. And, so they have like, this is where you get your sarsaparilla and there's like a little saloon and there's a fertilizer shop. And it looks awesome. Like, I know we can't show the video or photos right now or listeners, but if you look it up on Twitter or elsewhere of where Will actually was for the long Memorial Day weekend, the first thing it reminded me of was if you go to a really elaborately planned like Halloween haunted hayride, it's like the barn you get to where they sort of do a ripoff of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's really cool looking. <laughs> Right. I mean, it was exactly like that. And it was just a, uh, it was a weird scene all around. And one thing I, I want to stress is like these people, obviously this is kind of a self-selecting crowd that loves QAnon, but like these people really, really love QAnon. Like a lot of the speakers where there's kind of this effort going on to, especially among like QAnon promoters and particularly people like Sidney Powell or Michael Flynn who want to be like wink, 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 wink QAnon, but then want to be able to do something else and go on Fox News or something like that. There's this effort to kind of sand the Q off, right? And so we, we don't make it about QAnon anymore. It's 
it's just about this pedophile cabal and the election being stolen, but we don't say QAnon or we pretend like where we go on, we go all was this thing that existed before that, that we all love to say for decades. But at the same time, and so there was a lot of like people kind of alluding to the cabal or Pizzagate. When this audience got like red meat, like when people were like, okay, let's go through like 30 Q clues, or they would show these videos that were just like basically like stormtroopers with like where we go one, we go all on them, like busting into Congress and stuff. And it would say like, these people are sick, like justice is coming. These people were like, ah, like we, it was getting like standing ovations. And so, yeah, I mean, it, that was one, one thing I, I learned. And then obviously the other big event shortly after I was booted out and possibly inspired by their desire to see some sort of revenge on me was Michael Flynn calling for a coup. Of course, of course. The thing he keeps saying that he's not actually calling for, but there's always footage and audio of him doing so. <laughs> I want to know why what happened in Minamar can't happen here. <laughs> Like QAnon forums for a while have been super jealous that Myanmar ha- got to have a military coup. And so that's what they're referring to. And then Michael Flynn says, there's no reason. I mean, it should happen here. No reason. Right. So pretty clear to anyone who does not have a QAnon adult brain what that means, that he's saying it should happen here. Oh, even if you do have a QAnon adult brain, you you take that as confirmation of, yes, it should happen here. (laughs) Like, it's the one thing we can all agree on. The crowd cheered. That's sort of what you need to know, is that everyone was like, yeah. So then the next day, this video went viral, and Michael Flynn got a lot of criticism, and even from some Republicans who said, maybe we shouldn't have a military. (laughs) So then the next day at QCon, where as I was sort of forcibly retired and enjoying breakfast tacos around Dallas. The next day, there was a real push by the speakers to say Michael Flynn did not call for a coup. And so I think Sidney Powell and some other people said, get on social media and dispute this. He did not call for a coup. And Michael Flynn put out this quote, this statement saying like, hey, fake news, I have not called for a coup. Now, here's, you might say, how is this possible, right? And he says, basically he's saying, when he says no reason... I mean, it should happen here. He's claiming that actually he said, and there's a great article in the Washington Post about this. He's he's claiming he actually said no reason, basically no reason it should happen here. Like there's no reason it should happen here. And the other interpretations I've seen are that it's like, I would compare it to like the intro of the Jerry Seinfeld movie, Bee Movie, in which they say there's no law in nature that a bee should be able to fly, like all the laws of physics. And so basically Michael Flynn's argument is that he's saying like, if America weren't such a special country, there should be a coup. But, you know, but because we're so unique, we don't have. I need to reset my brain for a second after it's been so tremendously melted by by the past five minutes. (laughs) I don't want to say there's like gaslighting going on here, but my brain has been so warped, especially after QCon, but but just after years of this stuff, that like when these guys do this stuff, I'm like, all right, he pulled it out. He got the lie going. But yeah, obviously he was calling for a coup and and the crowd was absolutely uh, lapping it up. And here's the thing, right? People were saying, why did Will go to QCon? Whatever. Well, number one, we have a former national security advisor calling for a coup. But also, Michael Flynn was not alone there. The chairman of the Texas GOP, Alan West, took the stage almost right after him. So, and was palling around 
with him. So yes, Louis Gohmert was there as well. The Texas Agriculture Commissioner, who's kind of a seen as an up and comer in state politics. So this is not just a couple of QAnon people babbling to themselves. I mean, this is a movement. People who are saying these are just a bunch of kooks. The liberal media just wants to tell you that they matter because they really want it to be a thing and for it to matter. I don't know how many times we have to say that millions of people, if not believe every letter of this kooky religion, are at least tolerant of it or believe big parts of it. And also, when you run down the list of people who are important political players, including ones who are literally still in positions of power, whether they be Alan West or Louis Gohmert, Louis Gohmert, the fact that he is literally in Congress means he gets to vote on legislation that has national and international implications. Of course, it matters that they are latching onto this, even if you get them on the record to at least say the throat clearing of, I don't 100% believe Hillary Clinton is eating children in a dungeon. It does not matter. To give you a sense of the scale here, I mean, I believe last week there was this poll that said that roughly 23% of Republicans who, who they polled believe that the world is in control by a satanic pedophile cabal. A similar number believed that essentially that the QAnon vision of this violent storm is going to come. And there were some Democrats and independents who believe that too, albeit in smaller numbers. I guess the message of a lot of my QAnon reporting is that even as we see in the Biden era, QAnon sort of, there's fewer people who are going to openly be wearing Q shirts. But this kind of like, just like deranged thinking about the cabal and the pedophile cannibals somehow has gone on beyond Q and has sort of transmuted itself into just being a, a regular line of thought. As more people across the country are getting the vaccine, Republicans and Trump supporters have been one of the holdouts in terms of vaccine hesitancy. Swin, I I think you have some new reporting on what Trump thinks of all of his supporters refusing to get the vaccine. Okay, well, within Trump world, there's been an effort going on for weeks, if not months, to try to get the former president to do more. Their calculus, and I don't think they're incorrect on this, is that if there is going to be a significant dent made, maybe not solving the entire problem, but a significant dent made in the number of Republicans who are right now saying, I don't want to or will not get the coronavirus vaccine, there is literally one person in the country who could make that dent. And for better or for worse, that guy's name is Donald John Trump. And in recent weeks, there have been multiple people who are who have been very close to former President Trump, who have gone to see him at places like Mar-a-Lago, have gotten on the phone with him, who have been trying to convince him, and some of this is a coordinated push among some people, to try to flatter him enough to get him to take the mantle on this issue. Sometimes they frame it in the sense that if you do this, if you really make go get your vaccine a big point of your messaging and your public presence right now, you're going to get a lot of praise and a lot of press attention, including from people who usually wouldn't praise you. They argued there are a lot of Democratic lawmakers and politicians who would begrudgingly applaud you for going out there to do this, especially if you somehow managed to do it in a not-so-partisan way. He's been given advice that in his upcoming MAGA rallies, which of course he's continuing to do in his post-presidency, or at least that's what he's planning right now, to make getting your shots a big part of that rally push. There have been ideas kicked around about doing vaccine drives 
at the rallies themselves when they actually happen later this year in summer. People have implored him to do PSAs with former First Lady Melania Trump, urging his supporters to get the vaccine. And yet, barely any movement on this whatsoever. In fact, you could even argue no movement on it. So, Swain, I mean, do you have a sense on what the motivation here or the, the reason for the holdup is? Because right now, the risk of going, there's a dang Cheeto in the White House or was in the White House. I mean, it just strikes me as this is kind of like a classic Trumpian story of like, yeah, he's a bad dude who, who does not sort of like care hugely about other people and does not see a lot down the line because, you know, it's like, why didn't he do infrastructure week, right? Like an easy win that everyone would have liked because, you know, it was tough and he wanted to just jerk around and complain about stuff instead. I mean, is, is that it or is there something else? Well, there are several theories at play here. Like people I've spoken to who are close to Trump, some of them say they're not entirely sure why he's not making a big deal about this right now. Because again, to revisit the point, he is a man who craves media attention and adulation and being the focus of a national story like it's the air that he breathes. And this would undoubtedly, and very rightly so, garner a lot of media attention and earned media. But there was obviously a stubbornness and laziness to it. Some people who are close to him have posited to me that they think that he feels that if he were to do this, it would be validation of his critics that he was wrong about something. But I've kind of pushed back on that because I don't see how that would necessarily be Trump admitting fault or that. Well, I was going to say the other thing is like a huge part of the Trump base doesn't like the vaccine, right? So if he comes out and says, hey, get the vaccine, and he does it in a more forceful way than he has where he's sort of like, eh, I don't know, maybe check out that vaccine. I mean, he, he risks annoying them. That is another theory at play where they, there some people who are still in regular touch with Trump get the sense that he's not saying it directly to him, but they kind of get the sense from conversations that he innately understands that doing that kind of big old push would risk alienating too many people in his base, which is, of course, another form of attention that he craves and does not want to do without. And yet, surprise, surprise, he is just sitting on his hands over and over and over again on this. If it were a normal person doing it, it would be baffling. If it's Donald Trump, it's just another day in paradise. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, we welcome Washington Post reporter and close personal friend of the show, Dave Weigel. Listeners may know Dave as someone who for years has diligently and exhaustively covered campaigns and grassroots movements energizing both the political right and political left in American society. In his time at The Post, Bloomberg, Slate.com, and other publications, his work has been essential reading for news consumers who want to learn how exactly the GOP and the Democratic Party ended up where they are today. 
Welcome to Fever Dreams. It's good to be here. Thank you. Anytime. Well, one of the first things I want to start by talking to you about is the anti-democratic wave that's sweeping the states and local governments. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the work you've been doing and what you've been seeing as, as you've been traveling the country to report on this? As you said in that setup, this has been a conservative cause for a very long time, and I've covered conservatives for a very long time. I, I was, I would say, starting out. I've been a reporter for a while in 2009 when pe- figures like Chris Kobach were emerging and saying they were running for secretary of state uh, in his case or people running to take over congress and defund acorn which is still still defunded in every and i think every budget that's passed based on what sounded hard for people to believe this idea that there was enough voter fraud to swing even the 2008 election one where democrats did great you know michigan 17 points illinois uh, 20 points this election that Democrats, I think, thought they had banished the idea of mass voter fraud because of Obama won. It actually was the impetus for, I think, the, the toughest version of a campaign had been around forever. I mean, really, this is the 70s when Republicans were working to block automatic voter registration at the national level. The, their premise has been Democrats have this army of cheaters. And it kind of like a lot of things that have intensified since Trump's emergence. It, it's got, it goes from a thing that people joke about to a thing they completely believe. Right. So a joke about how, oh, well, the Democrats are going to go those dead voters in, in cemeteries, which you've heard for years, becomes we are going to audit the, the votes of the state and go through, go through the names of dead voters and see if any of them voted. The premise of in a lot of these, and I'm not sure if you glib about it because some voter fraud happens, but the premise is, has been pretty recognizable if you've ever covered conservative views of voter integrity. I guess that's kind of the catch-all term. They have just thought for decades that if, if Democrats win, especially if they win a race where they don't see much Democratic enthusiasm at where they live, they just assume something fraudulent is behind it. It's sort of the response that Republican activists, operatives, and government officials have had for a long time whenever this topic comes up, even before Trumpism came along. It's like, oh, are you saying that fraud never happens in an election or in the country? Lib, are you so naive to say that? And it kind of traps people they're arguing with into this sort of weird back and forth, because if you're operating in good faith as the opponent of that particular line of questioning or argument, you can't really win, quote unquote, win against someone who is saying that because they're asking you to prove a negative. They're trying to trap you into saying into answering yes to one of their questions that just leads to a complete road to nowhere. I mean, I I sometimes like to joke that the appropriate answer to that question is, well, do you have any definitive proof that your mother doesn't secretly hate you and wish that you were never born? If you were to answer in good faith, the obvious answer would be like, well, my mother could secretly believe anything and I, I have no idea. Yeah. Although the irony is that I think that's actually gotten harder uh, beyond the you know, three minutes. Let's let's get it out in the cable TV segment, yell at each other. Beyond that, I think that actually got harder to, to argue after 2020 because you had for the entire year and then until January 20th, you had a Republican Justice Department that put out a memo saying, hey, everybody, if you see fraud, say something. Here's how to report it. You had the DOJ putting out a release of a situation in Pennsylvania, which is not worth getting into the weeds in the two. But basically, so you know, a screw up of military ballots where a couple were, you know, found and counted too early. But you had all these resources. And this is this is a thing that goes back to I mean, not to defend everything Democrats have ever done. But with a lot of these, I'm like, well, gosh, if there were four years of the Trump DOJ and they didn't get Hillary arrested, what did she actually do? Same thing here is the idea that there was enough voter fraud to swing the election. You need to then argue, yes, well, there wasn't any kind of voter fraud the DOJ DOJ should chase. That means it was just too secretive. That means there was computer software behind it. That means that something could have gone wrong and, they, and there wasn't the time.
time to check. I mean, so there there have been some proposals, nothing that's to turn to a law, but some proposals for allowing an even longer period for people to study election results and look for this stuff, as if that would have fixed it. What you more often hear, though, is this kind of unfalsifiable argument that voters have questions about the election. These voters, if you look at polls, are Republicans, small chunk of independents, but mostly Republicans who don't believe the election was fair. And they say, well, it, it, voters believe that there something went wrong with the election and we need voter confidence. We, we can't have this election without voters being confident of the outcome. That's where you end up seeing this justified. This is everything from the Arizona audit to Wisconsin's Republican legislature saying they're going to hire some cops to look into election integrity. The, the premise is, look, there, as long as there are voters who think this was uh, this election wasn't fair, then we have to investigate. And that's a little bit rich because in Arizona, you just have tons of Republicans on the record. Uh, Peter Navarro. I'll just focus on him because I saw his segment on the War Room podcast who just say outright, yeah, we know how many votes were, were stolen, so we're going to find this many votes and it'll put Trump ahead by this much. I mean, there's a lot of that going on here. Keeping it straight is a little bit exhausting because you don't really likes to write a story, certainly you don't, with where you drop in a paragraph of actually, 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 here's what happened. But it, there are so many things flying in the same direction saying the election is suspicious that when you're right, you separate a couple and say, well, this one doesn't make sense. They say, yeah, well, voters have questions. And if the voters have questions, how were we to, to not work to make their questions go away? What are you seeing that is going on right now? Because we hear over and over and over again from Republican honchos and lawmakers that people need to move on from talking about January 6th. I mean, I remember going to Georgia the week after the the election, November. So the election happens and the, the code count's done. I, I head, in, head down the next week. And that was the the topic of discussion that excited people at every rally, first of all, was the election was stolen. I remember sitting down with Rick Scott, who runs the who now runs the NRSC. He didn't then. And he was kind of confident that, well, in a couple of weeks, we'll have an electoral college result that'll end all this, right? I'm barely paraphrasing him. I mean, really talking to him, looking at my notes from that, you definitely got the sense. He was like, yeah, this is a thing that people are going to be talking about for a minute. But I, I was struck by, I just could not meet any Republican voter who would say the election was like, that Joe Biden legitimately won the election in Georgia. And no matter who, and I make a point of not looking for the, the loopy looking person at a rally, right? I don't look for the guy with the, the, the funny hat, you know, the ask, ask me about my Antifa super soldier shirt or whatever. I don't look for that sort of person. I really do look for, you know, unless they're, something weird's happening, which sometimes it does. But I'm just looking for the guy dressed at this point like me, you know, a Columbia fishing shirt and some slacks. And they just say, yeah, well, you know, I saw this thing on OAN that the election might be overturned still. I just, I was not meeting anybody in Georgia who thought this. So it's a correct assessment of the Republican Party and Republican voters are third of the country that most of them think the election was stolen. I think we're past the point. It got a little bit boring when people would say, yeah, well, there's a lot of Democrats who thought this after 2000, 2016. Uh, they're all very different cases. There's, there's actually, I, I can't think of a case where the popular vote was this big and one guy, one party won it. Where I mean, this is usually what happens. You have this kind of legitimacy dispute. Oh, it wasn't going to say crisis. If somebody's president and everyone knows they didn't get as many votes, that's happened a bunch of times. In a case like this, where the president was very popular and he lost, and most people vote against him, and one party just says yes. We're, something went wrong and, and it wasn't fair. That's unusual. And I don't think that, you know, waving your hands around saying that's bad is, is very interesting. Just exploring what they think needs to change is, is fascinating. And some of the laws that have been passed are very fighting the last war. Our 
uh, restrictions on absentee ballots. Uh, some of them are fighting the last war and also, I think, ill-advised, like requiring more personal information from people in their absentee ballot forms. That's the thing. We all think we all love sending in the mail as much as much like, information that can be stolen as possible. And then there's stuff that's just if you really do want to suppress vote, you've been interested in it forever and you have an opening to get it in now. And this is things like Texas, although that laws in limbo, our state's making it much easier to uh, for poll watchers to do their stuff. It is reductive. So, I mean, like if you to look at any of this poll watcher, you know, so poll watchers are party activists who volunteer to go to a polling place and challenge votes if they think somebody's voting illegally. And it can be the, the example to think of here is some, you know, I'm with the Republican Party. That person didn't show an ID. I'm challenging that he's a voter here and I have to prove that they really are. That has been fraught for a long time. And there was a consent decree against the Republican National Committee for having done this unethically in election in the 80s. That consent decree is gone and that's been a focus. And you can tell, I mean, not to be cynical, but we both cover this stuff. A lot of our politics is people with money and a strategy noticing what people are angry about and saying, hey, do this now. This will this will this will fix your problem. And so these organizations, you know, Heritage Foundation, also some other third party groups, they've had kind of stuff on the shelf that they think would be great for Republicans for a long time. And they've been passing stuff like that. Now, the power this got from 2020 was when when Republicans think of poll watchers, they now think and this isn't true. They think of the video of uh, people banging doors to get into the well used to be the Kobo Center. It's the Detroit Convention Center, as if that meant people were being prevented from looking at these votes and prevented, therefore, from watching all the stuff that was stolen or something happened overnight. And they were prevented from watching that. It's bogus. And the, the people who were banging on the doors outside were not registered poll watchers. It was a party protest designed to create that impression that something was being hidden. Nothing was. And so if everything is fits really into this pattern, I mean, it's, it's, it's very coherent, this uh, idea that enough stuff went wrong in the last election that we need to act. And it turns out what we need to act on is stuff that's been on the shelf for a long time, but no one wanted to pass. Or they worried that if they passed it, it wouldn't hold up in court. I mean, this is the, through all this, a lot of the difference now is there's just red states. And Texas was always already like this, but you have even more conservative judges on the court that this would go to now. And the assumption is, well, you can pass it and a judge will say, yeah, this is fine. Whereas maybe four or five years ago, they wouldn't have. Right. I mean, you could say this about so many things about the past four or five years where Donald Trump is a symptom, not the actual problem or the cause. But I think one of the ways that is most viscerally felt is when you're talking about the subject you were just talking about, like crackdown on voting rights across the country and at the local and state level. Yeah. Politics is like 99% projection. I mean, and what you're describing, if you took some words out and unmadlibbed it, put some blanks in, and you put in what conservatives think the left is, does all the time, that's what they accuse the left of doing, right? Like, there's a crisis. Here they have a plan. They're ready to, to, to enact it based on they had a school's agenda and the protests last summer happened, and now they're going to push it on us. I mean, this is what what is happening with these voter laws. The one thing I'd add is that the voter ID thing does kind of stand apart because that is by far the most popular idea Republicans have. And it's one that people don't quite I'm not trying to be patronizing. It's not that they don't understand it. It's one that the issues that activists worry about, which is you're putting on ID requirements and there's old black people who don't have their social security card and can't vote. Most voters don't think of that. They're like, well, this is for the same reason most voters don't care that much about transgender athletes. They're like, does this happen very often? They just don't think it's a big problem. So they're not they're not against voter ID. The rest of this, though, are, is really confusing. And so much of this is in Texas and Georgia, just laws that will make it easier to have longer lines at polls. Was that a problem in the election? No, even by the Republican uh, argument, the the alleged problem with the election is if you're Sidney Powell, depending on if, whether you're in court or, or throwing red meat at people at a rally, if you're Sidney Powell, then it's this machine stole it. And if you're maybe 
an OAN commentator who's not going that far and who's worried about lawsuits, you say, well, then the absentee ballots are fraudulent. You don't say people lined up at polls um, forever and we need to make that harder. Um, but that's the thing. A lot of these laws, and that's the ones that have been the most controversial, have been like, wait a second. Like, why are we getting rid of same-day registration in Montana? Like, what did, did anyone tie that to any fraud whatsoever? No, it, and it, it does remind you of what people describe happening on the right whenever they see the, the, the left acting. Like, this is politics. You're allowed to do it. It's just um, watching it unfold, you realize, like, well, people are just were angry about the election, and <laughs> watching them all be recruited into a plan to do this agenda is pretty fascinating. Right. They keep talking on the right about how we, unlike those filthy liberals or whoever, we are the ones who are standing athwart the threat of illegitimate elections in American society. What they consider illegitimate is when the Democrat wins. It's very clear that that is the problem they are trying to fix for. And you have written before about how if a lot of these post-election laws that have now been enacted, not proposed laws, but the ones that have been enacted, if they had existed with prior to November 2020, that if you re-ran exactly what happened in the 2020 presidential election with those laws in those states, particularly in Georgia in place, Trump would have won. Yeah, and specifically, the easy one to describe is one in Georgia, the Fulton County, which is most of Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta spills across a couple, but Fulton's kind of the synecdoche for place where Democrats probably do fraud if you're Republican. They had a, a booth that just traveled around the district, monitored and with, with staffed, and it was a voting booth. You cast your ballot, and they take the ballot back to the, the county officials' headquarters. Yeah, more votes were cast at those, tens of thousands of votes, than the gap between Biden and Trump. So that was an easy one to explain. But you had the same thing in Wisconsin where had, and it's a little more complicated because you have a Democratic governor who can veto these bills, but had the Republicans gotten their way and votes not in, votes cast in the similar sort of events, like uh, there's one called a Democracy by the Lake, or Democracy in the Park, rather, like the Chicago song. Democracy in the Park in Madison where People showed up and there were election officials there and they voted. The Republican argument was like, well, those votes should be illegal. And what I always say to people, if you want to like untangle this because there's a ton of confusing, I would say, well, listen for the phrase illegal votes, not fraudulent votes. Fraud implies that somebody with a fake mustache showed up and said they were John Smith and they actually weren't. Illegal votes means a lot of things, and it encompasses this idea that votes that were cast in a process that the state legislature didn't approve of, that means they were illegal. And, and Republicans will say this pretty pretty adamantly. It's one of those phrases I kind of like as a political writer because it just it, it's, it's like a hand wave that implies a lot. When you say illegal votes, and if you're talking about you know, Pennsylvania, for example, the idea there was that millions of votes were illegal because they shouldn't have they, – they, the state shouldn't have allowed such access to absentee ballots without changing the Constitution. Therefore, all those votes cast should have been thrown out and Trump should have won. That's what I'm referring to. So it's we talk about voter ID, and I always emphasize, yeah, that's pretty popular. I think if, if, if things worked and two parties met together and were like uh, – Kentucky, actually, is a great example. You have a Democratic governor, Republican legislature, Republican secretary of state. They came together, they reformed some stuff. And I'd say, well, well a reform nationally would probably have voter ID in it. That's the thing, though. The activists, the tr Trump himself, they're not talking about if you take away all the fake votes cast by illegal people, they're saying if you just throw out all the votes that were cast in processes that were kind of loosened for the pandemic. In Nevada, where I'm calling you from now, if you um, throw out the votes that were like counted on these machines that they say were not tabulated to to check for sig signatures um, the right way. And signature verification has been a, been a big issue. It's one where, you know, that one people understand, right? Like if you go to 
get coffee and then you sign a check for rent and then you go get dinner. Does your signature look the same on every check? It probably doesn't um, look identical. And that's one thing. And they said to that, it's like, well, there's, there are votes that should be thrown out for that reason. There's votes that, should, that cast by native Americans that should be thrown out because the, uh, they, there was a group that was using state money to get, turn them out to vote and offering them like gift cards. Therefore it's illegal. So the, the, the term illegal votes is used to encompass not fraud, but just stuff that happened under the approval of local officials that they say shouldn't have happened. And yes, there was by far enough of that. Let's say if these laws had passed, maybe they would have adjusted. If courts had looked at this and said, yeah, you're right, this is all legal, then courts would have been able to throw out enough ballots to trump the election. As this is, you know, many things the Democrats are worried about seems pretty silly from time, from day, day to day. That, not really. I mean, they were really right. They were one vote away in the Wisconsin Supreme Court from having this looked at. And that's the fallback position by a lot of Republicans has been, well, all I wanted was the court to look into this. And I feel like a lot has gotten in under that disguise, which is if you're saying I just wanted the court to look at this Pennsylvania case saying, I think it's possible that a court should throw out several million ballots and hand the victory to my party. That was what they're basically saying. Okay, so as this is just cascading across the American political landscape, how have you found in your reporting that Democrats are attempting to not unilaterally disarm on this and attempting to uh, fight back as best they can, even as more and more of these laws are actually signed into law? Uh, Well, they're they're organized. I mean, every progressive group, liberal group is in on this to some extent. If you want to talk to the attorney general who are against this stuff, you can do that. But this definitely is the tense of this, I think, is taking them surprised. It's it's testing whether Democratic donors know what to do, because for for a while, actually, Democratic donors had a very good idea of uh, Secretary of State's project. It was called after the 2004 election. This is a good difference between how the parties operate. Were there people in, I mean, there still are people in Congress who voted to, you know, oppose the certification of the 2004 election. I don't think when you go back to them, they don't like to defend that vote, right? It was just, it was a stunt. It was, let's have this vote in the House and, because our constituents read an article about Ohio being stolen, right? It infuriates me when people are trying to play defense for Trump nowadays and also the Republican Party, and they bring up 2004 and 2000. Al Gore left. He, it, was a, it was a nasty, brutal fight for a while, a political and legal fight, and then he left and made a fucking documentary. The major messaging plank of the Democratic Party after Bush won twice did not become, we need to screw with our elections so Al Gore can win the next time. There is no equivalence to be made between these two things. Right. Well, that's what I was getting at, was that, yes, there were Democrats, I think, who said stuff at the 2004 election, especially Robert F. Kennedy, who Democrats have learned not to associate with recently. He was a big guy, but but not to get into the weeds on that. Let's take for granted the Democrats. Some Democrats said this election was stolen in 2004. Okay, well, what the donor class did was it funded this Secretary of State's project, this fairly loose thing, but it was nobody pays attention to these races. We're going to get money behind good candidates. They'll get elected Secretary of State, and they'll be there to defend the elections. And that actually worked in 2006. They had those guys in in power mostly, with a couple exceptions, like Michigan, uh, in 2008. And Republicans didn't really have a response to that. It was actually tough to get them. It was it's kind of odd now, considering how 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 much primacy this has in their minds. But yeah, it was the thing I heard at conservative conferences was, hey, the liberals have this program to fund all these down ballot races. No one pays attention to, and we don't. And I, I do want to wonder if, if liberals will pay attention to that or not. I mean, if they're going to throw all their eggs into passing HR one, which if they did would be that would obviate all their problems. It's just it involves convincing Joe Manchin to not be Joe Manchin. If they're pouring in money or not, because like you can already see that 
conservative donors who wouldn't have cared about a secretary of state race that long ago. It's got some of that 2009, 2010 energy where they say, I've seen that I wasn't paying enough attention to how these elections work. And we need people who are who are not going to let the, the liberals get away with it. The, the small donor energy is clearly going to be pretty intense for this. So I, I wonder if Democrats realize that and fight, fight back sounds like I'm advertising them. <laughs> if, they, if they adjust their strategy and realize, I think, a bad election year for them in 2022 would mean, uh, you know, secretaries of state in some states who falsely believe that their election was stolen and would have the legal power to say, you know, let's let's imagine it's 2022 and Tucson wants to set up a drop box and they say all votes cast in that drop box were illegal. That's kind of the, the situation that some of these people running would embrace. And yeah, that's my question. If Democrats fight back in a smart way, because you can find money to fight back for stuff, but it's not always in a smart way. And I think the last question I have for you here is you have brought up repeatedly during this conversation how the voter enthusiasm among the Republican base is remarkably strong right now for this, what they would like to call election integrity measures, what I think a objective observer should call just full-blown anti-democratic measures and endeavors put forth by the leaders of the Republican Party from top on down. But what you and your reporting have not seen recently in terms of conservative grassroots enthusiasm is the type of Tea Party style enthusiasm and zeal on the right that emerged almost immediately after Barack Obama's first election. That just has not happened in the advent of a Biden era, even though so many of these people at least say they believe that Biden is an illegitimate president who is destroying the country and should not be in power legally at this very moment. What do you mean when you've been seeing that lack of Tea Party-style enthusiasm, and what do you think accounts for that? Well, it is strange because not every movement needs to be the same here. Maybe I got thinking that there was going to be a, a loop because uh, patterns repeated in the last few presidential honeymoons, right? Uh, not George Bush, ironically, because he, he took the approach of just trying to get bills passed, Democratic support very quickly and get the tax passed, the tax cut passed. But Barack Obama and George Bush, yes, there was this big organization, big reaction. The common thread that indivisible people would tell you about and Tea Party people would tell you about was that they couldn't have planned as ra- rallies as big as they got if they got a year in advance to do it. There was something organic happening where people were just showing up. And so I expected, just because it's been happening recently, I was like, I was thinking, well, what is the thing that's going to get people in the streets? What's going to get people protesting outside the Capitol, outside state capitals, etc.? And you haven't seen that sort of mobilization. And you've seen there's been this professionalization, I guess, if that's the word, of this sort of activity where instead of kind of grassroots stuff, you've got just these $500 ticket as the thing Will was at this weekend, I think. These forums, these roundtables, these events, you have party meetings that people are showing up at. So at one level, I mean, I think in Georgia, for example, uh, Republicans are pretty happy that instead of just going and waving signs somewhere, a lot of Georgia conservatives were showing up to local party meetings and saying, I'm joining here. And they, they wanted a resolution condemning the governor for letting Biden win, things like that. So there's some grassroots activity, but not any kind of mass movement. It really is just about defending Trump and trying to get this electoral mulligan. I mean, Trump, Trump himself apparently believes what people like Sidney Powell say, I mean, you hear different stories, right? We've heard both he's putting her on mute and laughing at her and that he's he's agreeing with something. She did appear at the RNC with the RNC's logo and the chairman not far from her, chairwoman rather. But you have this idea that, well, Trump's going to be put back in power in August. And I think that can't be good for mobilization. I mean, I was watching Lynn Wood's campaign for South Carolina party chair. He got less than 30% of the vote, but some votes. And he was telling crowds that, yeah, the 
Trump is still president. He'll be back soon. Um, they're kind of letting there's an idea here that Biden is so obviously incompetent and bad that he is going that that everyone's already angry at him and they're ready to turn the keys back to Trump. That's not true <laughs> if you're looking at polling. But I think there's been some su- uh, depression, not suppression of Republican activity from this idea that just keep the TV on and things are going to get better. I don't know. It is much more focused around some social conservative issues and some Trump obsessions than it is opposing a particular Biden initiative. And that is new. I don't know what it's just different where people are staying engaged through more of a attraction to personality in defense of, of Trump than they are. Let's mobilize around an issue. Well, on that hugely uplifting and reassuring note, Dave, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Come back anytime and keep doing your essential reporting out there. Stay safe. And now we bring listeners to one of our most beloved and cherished segments on this show, a segment we like to call Fresh Hell, where we introduce the audience to an absurd thing that is happening in the real world that you may not believe is happening, but oh yes, it is indeed happening. Will, on this week's installment, you have something to report to us about the alt-right comedian's Idaho compound. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I think this could be the beginnings of a Fresh Hell sub-segment called Compound Watch. In which we keep you up to date on all the compounds that are making people go, ooh, yikes. Well, on top of that, we also have the recurring segment theme, and we have not been doing this intentionally. But I got to say, how many segments have we done on comedians who are not funny? Yeah, well, Gutfeld. That comes up all the time, and yet they always end up being these extremist snake handlers. <laughs> so in this case, we're dealing with a compound from alt-right comedian Owen Benjamin in Idaho. Let me set up here who Owen Benjamin is. I mean, there's a lot of guys who kind of come to the alt-right because they're already losers. They can't make it in normal society. Owen Benjamin's a guy who actually like had some amount of success in Hollywood. His IMDb is pretty big. He was briefly engaged to Christina Ricci. I don't know much about this Owen Benjamin fellow, but I I'm looking at his Wikipedia page right now, and it says he had a supporting role in The House Bunny, a great movie co-starring Emma Stone and Anna Faris. And he appeared twice as a correspondent on The Jay Leno Show. Not The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, but The Jay Leno Show. Yeah, so he actually had a pretty decent career. He was on, like... The Amy Schumer show. But basically, like, his kind of claim to fame was he was like one of these like piano comedians. So he's kind of like Bo Burnham's Joker. Back in the day, caveman times, like a girl would have a baby, she'd be vulnerable, right? She'd be like, Can you get us food? And the dude's like, mm, Fuck yeah. <laughs> and he'd see like a woolly mammoth. He's like, Oh yeah. Christ chasing this fucking thing. But sort of as time went on, he, like, in the Trump era, he became more right-wing. He went on, like, Joe Rogan and, like, Ben Shapiro's Daily Wire, Stephen Crowder. And he was kind of becoming, he was kind of one of these, like, proto-PC police won't tell me what to say. But it turned out what he started saying more than the PC police did not like. He put on a, a comedy show in his, like, tiny town. And the locals, it seems, were like, oh, great, like, dinner and a show. And then he just, like, screamed the N-word a bunch. And so he was, the locals did not like that. And so hasn't he also had words to say about Hitler? Yeah, he well, he said he's like, look, Hitler was that guy. He wasn't so much that he hated the Jews. He was just trying to get rid of the parasites. 
Like, hmm, n- nice thing to say. So he has kind of this, like, he's become this kind of alt-right figure. And and even within, like, the, the alt-right, like, a very controversial one, he has this fan base called The Unbearables, and emphasis on the bear. And I, I will say, no group of people has ever described themselves better. Because they, like, for example, you might see these guys on Twitter sometimes. It's, it's often people with a bear emoji in their handle. But basically, they call themselves, like, I would be, I could be, like, DC Bear. You kind of all get aliases. And so, like, they call him, like, Big Bear. And so, as Owen Benjamin's career has gotten worse, he, like a lot of, of people on the far right who have kind of been ostracized, has become obsessed with going back to the land and, and leaving society. And so, he promised his pals about a, a, a year ago, his bear following, that he was going to create a sort of utopia for them, a place called Bertaria. Okay. And if you sent 400 bucks to Bertaria, you would have, like, some rights to the land, like you could camp there for a couple weeks. He kind of described it in different ways. And the key thing about Bertaria was Owen Benjamin's wife wouldn't let him hang out with his internet friends at their house. And so he needed Bertaria to hang out with them. And I have to stress, like, there's a lot of fans. Of that. I mean, you know, I don't know, thousands of people. He basically raised, I think, north of $100,000. He claimed he was going to buy them this $2 million compound. That didn't happen. So, he, But he raised, like, almost $200,000 from these folks. And locals in the area are actively worried that this has the potential to become the next Ruby Ridge. But thank goodness that hasn't happened yet. Right, so he takes this money and he buys this land that he calls, it's on a river, and he calls it Ursa Rio. And this is the beginning of a sort of Ursa empire within Idaho. And initially, the locals who are just Idahoans, this is like a very wooded area. It's served by like one tiny road where the maintenance is just locals adding rocks to it every so often. There's no utility lines. And so these people were all just kind of vibing out in Idaho. And then suddenly, they start seeing all these bear type guys building a compound. And the, these people who obviously, I mean, Owen Benjamin's a somewhat niche character, even for people who are really up on this stuff. But I mean, these poor people in Idaho, basically Owen Benjamin has a lot of detractors on the internet and some of them are alienated former bears. Some of them are liberals. They all like congregate on Reddit and sort of track his moves. And the thing is, the reason he gets money from these people, from his, his fans is he does these hours long videos. And so he goes like, Bertaria, we're all going to go to Bertaria and and we're going to have a shooting range and we're going to have classes on how to shoot. And, and oh, I'm friends with all these paramilitaries, so don't mess with me. And all of his detractors are just like recording, recording, recording and clipping the most incendiary bit. And so then they send them to the locals in Idaho and these people go like, what the hell? And so now there's this, the town council has been urged to take action against Bertaria. And so, you know, I interviewed Benjamin about his plans for Bertaria and it's getting pretty heated down there or up there. So give us one plank of his pl- Benjamin's plans in his own words to you for Bertaria, which by the way, the way you're describing this, you know, that contraption from the movie, the fly, it makes me think that you took Jim Jones, <laughs> like a Rick and Morty character and put it through the fly machine and out came Owen Benjamin and Bertaria. That's not even good branding. What the fuck is Bertaria? <laughs> so he's described Bertaria as a place where families can come and, and do fishing. And, and he's claimed that there's no guns have been fired on the property, which people have sent me evidence suggesting otherwise. But I think like the funniest thing to me about the difference between Bertaria as it was imagined and, and how it's playing out right now is how. So he raised this 400 bucks from everyone. And he said, you know, basically like some of it was like, you know, this land's going to be set aside for the bears to hang out, all this stuff. And then it became like, wait, maybe I don't want to hang out with these people for the rest of my 
my life. And so instead, Owen said, actually, Beartaria is like kind of more of an idea. And maybe your own backyard is your Beartaria. And in fact, you have no rights to this land that we crowdfunded together. And so things have been getting even not the locals, but some of these bears are like, wait a minute. Like, I was planning to live in Beartaria for the rest of my life. And so there was a case where a woman, a bear, basically, she showed up and was like, hey, okay, I'm ready to live in our colony now. And he kind of sent her on her way. My understanding now is that some rogue bears are currently en route to Beartaria, where there may be some kind of showdown. And of course, his critics on Reddit are, I mean, this is like the best time they've ever had. The other thing I'd like to say about Idaho and Owen Benjamin is, so he's really like a very poor neighbor. This is not like a guy you would want to have in your community, I think, just on his behavior. He has all these stories where he like goes to the post office and some old guy is like, hey, can you put a mask on? And he's like, shut up, cripple, like you old hunchback. And the guy's like, oh, what? And there's this local reporter there, Mike Wheeland, who's been doing fabulous work on this stuff. And he wrote a story about the neighbor's concerns and Owen sent some of his goons out to confront this guy who is in a wheelchair. And Owen's like, this guy's a pedophile with absolutely no reason to say that. And then he just starts making fun of this guy for being in a wheelchair. Not a guy that I think even very conservative Idahoans are necessarily going to want in their community. Well, the important thing to realize in all of your reporting on this is that real Bertarianism cannot fail. It can only be failed. (laughs) And if all of this does go sideways, well, no, it's not real Bertarianism. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.